So Romans 7, 13 through 25. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it is used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, do, what I, hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is in sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer who, longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of our Lord. So we took a break for the last two weeks, but we are back in the book of Romans, preaching through the book of Romans. If you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through that book um, for most of this year, and we'll be continuing to do that for a while. But a quick word or two of orientation right at the start, if you weren't with us this last couple of months. So in Romans chapter 5, we get this first kind of climactic declaration that Paul builds to in that letter of the fact that we are justified by faith and not by our works. And then in Romans 6 and 7, Paul essentially gives these two kind of ways you can veer off in problematic directions from that idea that he tries to correct before in Romans 8 he comes back to the benefits of what God has done in Christ. And so in Romans 6, Paul is discussing the way that you can kind of veer off into sin and just say if we're justified by faith, what place is there for obedience? And so we spent time working through that. And now in Romans 7... Paul is discussing the way that we can veer off into legalism and into slavery to the law. And so we're right in the middle of that this morning. So as we get ready to dive into that, let's pray. Father, I pray as we come to your word that you would be instructing our hearts, calling us today, just as you do always, into the way of Christ and conforming our lives more and more to him. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word that we might heed it and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. 
Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I feel like in our world, there are two different stories that you can kind of slip into telling about life. Two different stories. One of those kinds of stories we can tell is just the story of defeat. That we can believe our life is the story of constant defeat. That it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter how hard we try, we're just never going to get ahead. And for some of us, that story can come from some sense of this group that we're a part of, or family, or whatever. That the world is against us because of this part of our identity, and we're only ever going to be victims, and we're helpless, and we're never going to be able to get out from under that thing that we were born into. For others of us, that sense of defeat comes from our own pasts. We've experienced some terrible things or done some terrible things, and we feel like at that moment the die had been cast for us forever, and we're never going to escape it. For still others of us, that story of defeat comes from our present circumstances, and we feel like we've tried and tried, but nothing seems to change, and nothing ever will. And no matter the reason that we slip into that, those of us who slip into that story of defeat have a real problem, because that can very easily become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you accept that you're only a victim, and that you are helpless, and that nothing is ever going to change, then that will probably stay true of you. That nothing will change, and you will not find help, and you will continue to be victimized. If you believe that you're always going to lose, often we always do. But then in response to that, others of us, I think, slip into this other kind of story that we like to tell, and that is a story of victory, of kind of absolute unmitigated victory, that we can do anything, and the optimism train is a-rolling, and it won't stop for nobody. <laughs> and that can come in the form of, pow- of, of like positive thinking, right? That the idea that you're just supposed to kind of think these victorious thoughts and look in the mirror every morning and say, you know, hey there, beautiful, like you are strong and you are, right? You know, and and get yourself pepped up for the day. Or that story of victory can come in this certain version of the American dream where we just honestly believe that as long as we follow the rules and work hard, we're going to get our McMansion and our 2.3 kids and 4.6 grandkids and nothing will ever go wrong for us. Or it can come in a kind of perverted spiritual form even, right? That tells us that if we just believe enough and are obedient enough and pray enough that that you'll always be happy and healthy and secure. But that story of defeat, or just like that story of defeat, that story of victory can actually lead us into big problems too. One is that it can lead you into discouragement because that isn't always how our stories actually go. And if you believe that, that if you just think positively enough or work hard enough or pray faithfully enough that everything will go well for you, then that means that when things don't go well, it's somehow your fault. And so you easily slip into this sense of discouragement because you feel like somehow you're causing these hard things that are happening to you. And even more dangerous than that, if you do somehow succeed in that kind of story of victory... That's maybe even worse, because that means you think that you did deserve all of that, and so all the other people that don't have your same level of health and comfort maybe don't, and that can lead to a dangerous sort of pride and a lack of compassion. It's those two stories, and they can both become dangerous to us if we take them too far. 
So why am I talking about that up front here in Romans 7? The reason is because I feel like there's these two ways that you can read Romans 7 that can each, nat- each lead to that kind of story if we don't pay attention. So there's a lot of debate, actually, about how to interpret this chapter. Um, I don't know if any of you are aware of that, but um, basically, here's what people debate about Romans 7. It boils down to this very simple question, which is, when Paul's describing what's going on here, is he talking about his past as a sort of legalistic religious person, or is he talking about his present experience as a Christian? Is he talking about his past or his present? I mean, just listen like in verse 15, to how Paul describes what he's feeling. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. He's talking about the law, and he's saying some part of me wants to follow the law, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the things that I hate. And he spells out that struggle even more later in verses 22 through 24. He says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul is describing this experience of struggle and failure in many ways with sin. And so the question that a lot of people debate is, is Paul describing this thing that's true of him before he's a Christian? Or is he describing his present experience as a Christian? You could argue that Paul's talking about the past, and there's good reasons to hold that position. He's talking about being a Pharisee before he was a Christian. One is that he is building towards this promise of deliverance. That's what happens just after what we read. He says, who will rescue me? And then in the first half of verse 25, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, in Romans 8.1, he's going to proclaim that the spirit um, of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So that seems like because of Jesus, something's changed about his situation. And that fits with his emphasis in chapters 5 and 6 that we have been set free from slavery as Christians. He says earlier in Romans 7 that we've been set free from the law, but then in verse 23, he talks about how something is making me a prisoner of the law of sin. And that doesn't sound like freedom, right? But at the same time, there's good reasons to argue that Paul is talking in some sense about the present. Earlier in Romans 7, um, Paul is talking in the past tense in the first place, and in these verses he suddenly shifts, and he starts talking about himself in the present tense, and that seems like a good indicator that we're not supposed to view this as the past. And if you read the second half of verse 25, it sure sounds like the present. Right after declaring that deliverance, he says, So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And I think many of us resonate with something like what Paul's describing here, too, in our present experience. That there are times that we, some part of us is seeking to do what is righteous, but some other part of us is longing for sin, and we feel like we're being led astray by that sinful part of us. So what do we do with that tension, right? What's the right way to read this passage? Well, first... I think it's worth noticing that both of those ways of approaching the text, if you just take them in themselves, can actually lead in kind of problematic directions. And that's why we mentioned those two sorts of stories. So if Romans 7 is only a description of Paul's present experience, um, 
then, then that can actually lead us to a kind of story of defeat, right? If I want to do this good, but I just cannot do it because the sin in me somehow leads me into disobedience, right? If that's just, that's my story, then that can lead me to this sense of defeat, right? Why even bother? Why even struggle when it just seems that I'm going to, to be forced and dragged into this thing? But on the other hand, if this is only about Paul's past experience, it can create in us that sense of absolute victory. We can read that and think, well, we're just not like that at all anymore, right? And that can lead us into this dangerous pride that will result in our falling hard. And it can lead us into looking down on others who resonate with that description of struggle that Paul uses. So here's why I think that that's the case. I think that that's because really there's ways in which both of those understandings of Romans 7 are true. That there's a little bit of both of those things in this passage. Here's, here's what I think is actually going on, right? So in the first place, Paul is describing his past experiences. I think you have to believe that because the whole point of this is to lead us into this declaration of freedom in Jesus. That's the point of verse 25 and the point of Romans 8. But he's describing them to make a point not just about the past, but about the present way that we can live as well. That what he experienced as this kind of legalistic, outwardly religious person, he can still experience at times and in ways in the present. And the reason that it's both of those things is because what I think is Paul's really, what what he's really trying to describe in Romans 7 is not a point in time, past or present. What he's trying to describe is a way of living. What he's talking about is a way of living. So way back at the beginning of chapter 6, in talking about sin, Paul says this. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And we talked about that question back when we preached on Romans 6. Talked about the idea that on the one hand, right, we have died in Jesus to sin. That's part of what Paul's saying. But that but it's still somehow possible to live in sin, right? Even though we have died in Jesus, that's still in the present, we have to make choices about whether we're going to live in it or not. And in chapter 7, back at the beginning, Paul says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who raised from the dead, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit from God. So Paul's essentially saying we have died to the law, How can we live in it any longer? That that he's describing in this passage, he's not describing like his life before Jesus or after Jesus, but what he's describing is life under the law. That's the way that he used to live, he says, under the law. That was how he pursued righteousness before he met Jesus. But it's also a way that we can still seek to live that he and we can still seek righteousness under the law. And so what he's trying to explain in these verses is why that doesn't work and what a better way is. So that's the big idea, that we should not live under the law. That's what he's talking about here. But if that's true um, um, for us as Christians, then that's something that we need to talk about um, in terms of just like what that looks like for us, right? That this isn't just something that is about Paul's kind of legalistic past, but this is something that we need to wrestle with in our present. And so here's what I want us to do then. If that's the case, I want us to basically just talk for a minute about what that means, right? What it means to live under the law. 
and then talk about why what Paul is saying about that is true, why he's saying that that doesn't work, and then talk about what we're called to do instead, all right? So what it means to live under the law then, and why that doesn't work, and what we're called to do instead. First of all, what does it mean to not live under the law? Well, this is the crucial thing first. Paul's not talking about obeying. We discussed this a few weeks ago in the first part of Romans 7. When he talks about being under the law, he doesn't mean by that just obeying God. And he's not saying here we shouldn't worry about obeying God. He just spent chapter 6 making clear that we are supposed to obey God. And even in our reading for this morning in verses 13 and 14 and 18, he emphasizes that God's law is good. And there are certain Christians who sometimes take the sort of language Paul uses here and in places like Galatians about not being under the law, just kind of be like, woohoo, let's, you know, let's have a sin party, right? And that's, that's not the appropriate way to read this. The problem isn't with God's law, but the problem is with our relationship to it. Paul is arguing against a certain approach to the law that he terms living under it. So what's that? Well, the simplest summary, I think, and this will become apparent in a minute as we dig into what it means, but the simplest summary for what Paul is saying here in Romans, I think, is that living under the law means us trying to obey the law using the resources in only that are in us and in the law to obey it. It's trying to obey the law using only the resources in us and in the law to obey it. So, for example, in practice, that might look like trying to motivate obedience only through guilt and shame. That Jesus died to take away our guilt and shame, right? But we say, well, we're just going to pile it back on and kind of just try to make, us, make ourselves feel bad enough and feel ashamed enough that we're going to obey the law. Or it might look like seeking obedience through just a multiplication of rules, <laughs> That we think that if we just figure out all the things that might tempt us to sin and all the situations where those things might arise and then we just made a plan to avoid all of that stuff that we could somehow be free of sin. That if we just came up with enough strategies and checklists and habits that we could somehow kill sin in ourselves. That's also living under the law. And there are other ways to do it, but, but the emphasis in all of this is that living under the law, those things are either arising within me, right, my effort and discipline and planning and cleverness, or they're just in the law itself, in the rules and commandments of God themselves. And Paul says that that's a problem if those are the only resources we're using, because according to Paul, there's something wrong with us. And that starts to get into that second question. Why is this true? Why is Paul saying that it doesn't work to live under the law? The reason is what he's trying to show us in these verses, which is that there are problems with us. So first, Paul says, while the law is spiritual, we are not. So if you look at verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. And remember when Paul talks about being spiritual, he means the Holy Spirit especially, being connected to God through his spirit. But he's saying here, you know, the law, um, the law comes from the Holy Spirit, but I, in my natural state, am not the Holy Spirit, right? I'm just a human being. And so all the stuff that we've said earlier in Romans is true. We're corrupted by sin, and we are depraved. If we're drawing on our own resources, we're not drawing on the Holy Spirit. Not only are we not spiritual, Paul says, we're not, in a real sense, even good. So verse 18, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, 
that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So the law is good, and it can teach us to desire good, but there's significant parts of me that are not good. There is evil inside of us. I think the picture sometimes is that it's like we're saying we want there to be clean water, but trying to, to, to use the law to make our hearts clean is as if, you know, we're just pouring ourselves into it and it's supposed to come out clean on the other side. But everyone knows that if our hearts are contaminated, right, just because you run it through the series of channels, it's not going to not be contaminated when it comes out. He sums up this struggle starting in verse 21. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So he says he wants to do good in some sense. He hears God's law and he decides to try to do the right thing. But because he isn't spiritual and because he isn't good, even as he is deciding to do good, evil is right there caught up in the mess as well. So then verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In just a minute, he's going to equate that inner being to his mind. So he means, like, I think about it and I decide, right? I'm going to try to follow God's law. He agrees in some sense that it's good. But then verse 23, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So that isn't enough just to agree with it, just to read it and decide I'm going to try to keep it, Paul says. Because... He, he lacks within himself the ability to keep it. He needs some resource beyond himself to actually be delivered from this. Because even the he that is agreeing with the law is still also the he who is caught up in sin. And so verse 24, he ends up saying, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Here's the point, Paul says. Our problem is not that we try to obey God's law. That's good. But our problem is that we are trying to do it on our own power. We want to obey God's law, but we won't ever be able to do it. We won't ever reform ourselves into obeying it if all we're relying on is our own effort. We're going to talk about the solution to that in a minute. But let me just speak a little bit more to the truth of that reality. I think we're often in our world given this sense of, um, of optimism, that we're told that everything is fixable if you just figure it out and try hard enough, that if you just work hard enough at things or just figure out the right plan or get the right diagnosis or whatever, that you can fix yourself and every, everything can be better. And here's the thing, all of those things can be helpful in some sense, right? Uh, I mean, it's certainly, you know, hard work and, and, um, and learning to think better and all of that. Those good habits might help us to feel better, but none of those things can actually fix us. They can make us more comfortable and more balanced and even happier, but we are still at root the same people that we've always been, Right? We might have come up with, you know, with a, a more self-discipline or better branding. But down in our hearts, the same shadowy things lurk that always lurked there. One of the things that scripture constantly calls us to do is always to look inward. It calls us to righteousness, not just on the surface, but in our hearts. It calls us to humility and gentleness and patience and wisdom and love. And there is no set of strategies or habits or plans that you can do to make yourself gentle and patient and humble 
and loving, right? Because, because in the moment that I decide I'm going to try to like fix myself, usually caught up in that are my pride and my impatience and my anger and my foolishness, even in the moments that I'm deciding to try to change my heart. Or imagine the problem like this. Imagine a teeter-totter at the park, all right? You're sitting on one side of that teeter-totter. Um, and so you have you, and in the middle of that teeter-totter is the point where it swings. The, the fulcrum is, if you remember, simple machines back in elementary school, because it's a lever. But it's the fulcrum, right? Um, and the fulcrum's like the law. It provides you this direction and this channel and point on which to turn, right? This, this thing that's, that, you know, that, that provides the kind of thing that, that, that you can be moved on. But if it's just you on one side of the teeter-totter and that fulcrum, you're not going anywhere, <laughs> right? You're not going to move and lift yourself. At best, you can maybe just like jump up in the air for a minute, but then gravity is going to reassert itself, and you're going to be back on the ground. The law is like that fulcrum. It can provide a good point on which we are called to turn, but if it's just us and the law, we're not going anywhere, because what we need is something to push on the other side. We need something to push on the other side. Which moves us then to what Paul calls us to do instead. What we do instead of pursuing righteousness based on ourselves. Right? So we say, how do we live and how do we pursue righteousness if not under the law? And before we get to the answer, let me just submit what I think is an important principle for us as Christians to recognize. And I think it's the principle behind how Paul understands all of this is working. And the principle is this. It's that there is an essential difference between having something be true of you and having something be real for you. That there is an incredibly important difference between just having something be true of you and then having something be real for you. Like one summer, I worked on a farm, and I worked on this farm, and we, they had cattle, like 50 head of cattle, and I was just helping with whatever, but one of the jobs I quickly got was, um, They did this thing called segmented grazing. I know there are a couple of you that are farmers here will find this interesting. But, I mean, they would move cattle every day or two to just like a small part of the pasture instead of just letting them roam around, and then they'd eat down all this stuff. But anyway, my job um, most mornings was to go out on a four-wheeler and like put up new temporary electric fence and move the cows over and then take down the old fence where they had been. And, you know, then the next day I would go do the same thing. And I did that for like a month and was kind of getting comfortable with it and then Um, did it one morning and was driving back by there in the afternoon and realized that somehow, like, I had missed, like, eight fence posts worth of electric fence. Um, Like, I had put the the posts up, but had missed it in the way that I had strung up the fence. And I immediately panicked because I was like, oh my goodness, like, all the cows, you know, are probably gone. But I counted them, and they were all still there. (laughs) And they had all still stayed away from the fence. Because here's the thing, right? They saw those fence posts and just assumed that they were still trapped. They knew what those fence posts meant, right? If you, if you walk between them, uh, you get a nasty shock, and so they didn't walk between them. But what's striking is that in that moment, that wasn't actually true of those cows anymore, right? In truth, they were free, and they could have just wandered off and eaten grass wherever they wanted to eat the grass. But while that was the truth, that wasn't what was real for their experience. But the reality for them was still that they were trapped, and so they were, even though the truth was that they weren't. So Paul, at the end of Romans 7, um, he tells us this kind of final, awesome 
truth that also exists in tension. So first we read verse 24. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me from this situation? And in the first part of verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I have been rescued, right? I've been delivered by Jesus. Hallelujah. And then second half of verse 25, So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. It's kind of like, wait, what? How do those two thoughts fit together? That I've delivered in Jesus, but I myself, in my mind, am a slave, and in my sinful nature, am a slave. Well, here's what I think. I think that Paul there is really bringing home the sense that what he's talking about in this passage is a way of living, right? Or two different ways of living. Before Christ saved him, Paul says, he was a slave to the law and to sin. A slave in his mind to God's law, a slave in his flesh to sin. And in the present, he has been delivered by Jesus, but he still can live out of that slavery. He can still live out of that slavery instead of the truth of what Jesus has done for him. That even though Paul has been set free by Jesus, he doesn't always live that way. And neither do we. That's the point of this whole chapter, to recognize the difference between what is true of us and the reality of how we often feel. To recognize that difference and then to seek to make what is true of us become more real. But maybe that sounds kind of abstract. So let me, let me try to give you some concrete senses of that. In Christianity, I think the process of discipleship often is about us coming to understand these things that God has made true of us and then living into them as the reality of our lives. So for example, because of the gospel, we are not guilty anymore. I said that earlier, but just period. Because of the cross and the work of Jesus, if we repent and trust in him, there is no guilt left. But so often I live in a way that is mired in guilt, right? I feel haunted by my past sins, and they tear me down, and they tell me that I'm unlovable and worthless, and I start to believe it, and I start to believe that maybe God is out to get me, and maybe I don't deserve this stuff because I feel like I am guilty. And so part of Christian discipleship is learning to really believe that the truth of what God has done for me in Jesus is actually the reality in which I live. To preach to myself that truth that God has, you know, that in Jesus Christ God has paid all of the penalty for my sin and so that as I am in him, I don't bear it anymore. And to really seek to live into that reality because it's true, but it's very easy for me to live like it isn't. Or because of the gospel, We are God's sons and daughters. That's another thing that's true of us in the gospel. That's the source of our identity. We aren't defined by our sin. We are defined by a new family that we have in God. But we often believe the lie that we are still defined by stuff in this world. We still act like we are just part of this sort of earthly identity. Often, even though what is true of us is that we are children of our Father in heaven, the reality that we live out is if we are still only sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so part of Christian discipleship is learning to really believe as something real to us that we are God's children. To believe in the privileges of intimacy and the inheritance that that promises us. And to believe that that defines our identity 
and how we're supposed to live. Because of the gospel, we have the power to fight and overcome sin. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus, right? The power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And he lives in us and makes God's resources available to us and pours the strength of Jesus' resurrection into us, as Paul's about to say in chapter 8. And, and so that means that when we struggle against sin, we need to believe that that truth is real too and struggle in that strength. That that is true and there's power there, but often we don't make use of it. We try to manufacture obedience only through guilt and gritted teeth rather than drawing on the reality of what God is working for us. So that's Paul's ultimate call, to recognize, to to not live under the law, but to recognize what God has done in Christ and then start to make those things a reality for us. Which in some ways I think brings me back to those two stories that I mentioned at the start, right? Some of us believe that story of defeat, that we are losers and are always only going to lose. And others believe that story of victory, that we can just be winners all the time and always win. But both of those stories, we said, are ultimately destructive. And the reason is because neither of those stories really deliver us from this way of living that depends only on ourselves. So what Christianity calls us to is not a story that says that because it depends on me, you know, beautiful, strong me, I can just triumph. And not a story that says because it depends on me, weak and sinful me, I am doomed. Rather, what Christianity calls us into is the story of Jesus. That Jesus suffered defeat and hardship and new pain and betrayal. And that Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, came through on the other side and was ultimately victorious. But not believe that in the sense that we say, well, Jesus did that and I can too. But to rather believe in that story as something that somehow, because Jesus has done it, has become true of us. And is becoming real for us as we believe and walk into it. Our stories are actually swallowed up into Jesus's. Jesus actually suffered our defeats. And Jesus actually won for us our victory. And so as we put our trust in him, and as we move in relationship with him, and as we seek to rely on him, we find a story that is bigger than us. And that makes available to us resources that you and I just don't have. Because it's a story that fixes our eyes on the work and power of God himself. And as we retell that story to each other and to ourselves, and as we believe it more and more for ourselves, it actually changes us. As we really come to understand that that is the truth of us because of Jesus, then we can work to make that the reality for how we experience the world as well. That, in many ways, is the foundation of what it means to live out the story of Jesus in discipleship. Would you pray with me?